Hi, everybody, and welcome to Martin Van Dyke Undercovers, produced in partnership with the Ann Arbor District Library. Recently, I had a chance to interview the author of 1965, The Most Revolutionary Year in Music, during 12 incredible months back in 1965 in the middle of the turbulent 60s. America saw the rise of innovative new sounds that would change popular music as we knew it. In his new book, music historian Andrew Grant Jackson chronicles a groundbreaking year of creativity fueled by rivalries between musicians and continents, as well as sweeping social and technological breakthroughs. In 1965, there was incredible music being made by an incredibly wide variety of artists, including the Beatles, the Temptations, the Rolling Stones, John Coltrane, James Brown, Simon Garfunkel, Bob Marley, Johnny Cash, Vince Guaraldi, Otis Redding, and dozens and dozens of others. Andrew's comprehensive coverage of this unforgettable year in music is a terrific and fascinating read. I started my interview with Andrew Grant Jackson by asking him about this year of 1965 and why he thought it was so special and why he thought he should write a book about it. There's been a number of books on um, later years in the 60s, like 67, 68, and uh, 69. Um, The editor of uh, my book, Rob Kirkpatrick, actually did a good book on 1969. Um, but uh, those years, on the surface, things were a lot more radical and uh, everything seemed to be changing. But I think a lot of those, uh, the, or almost all the roots you can trace back to 65, um, especially musically. Um, I think it was that year was monumental because there were kind of five big social forces going on at the time. You had, um, you know, civil rights, Vietnam, uh, the pill, uh, psychedelics, and then the musicians' own long hair. They all kind of kind of snowballed into each other and exploded, and then the musicians started reflecting uh, those changes. Like all those, so those social forces made people start demanding more personal freedom, and then the musicians started reflecting that in their lyrics. And then it, and also in their experimentation with new sounds and new genres, and uh, so I think it, I always think of it as kind of the year that the old the oldies started turning into classic rock, and it just that was kind of like the zero hour where things started to get weird. <laughs> <laughs> but still, there was the you know like it was psychedelia really was in its nascent early early stages in '65, right? I mean, we're, we're talking this is pre Sergeant Peppers, this is pre Satanic Majesties, this is pre Jimi Hendrix experience, and in many ways, a, a, at least somewhat a more innocent time. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, if you're talking psychedelics specifically, uh, Keith Richards said in his memoir that it was in early '65 that he was first introduced to marijuana by uh, musicians on tour, and you know, Bob Dylan had famously gotten the Beatles into it the previous August in '64. Uh, the Beatles, Beach Boys, they were all uh, the Beatles. Without their knowledge, they were kind of dosed with LSD uh, by their dentist. You know, who, who didn't ask their permission first, and that was in uh, uh, March of '65. So yeah, the, the psychedelics just—this was the year where it really started to kind of percolate in their mind. But uh, it was still—that's why I was so fascinated with this year because the music still sounds like, uh, to a large extent, like the oldies 
or like the classic rock song style of like the 50s guys like Buddy Holly. But at the same time, then you suddenly have the birds, I mean, not the birds, the Yardbirds, they wanted to add a sitar to Heart Full of Soul. The, the musician wouldn't, couldn't do it how they wanted, so then Jeff Beck used a fuzz, a fuzz, uh, what do you call it, a fuzz pedal, a distortion pedal to get that kind of sitar sound. So it's, you had kind of like an old style rock with suddenly all this new technology coming in, you know, right? just kind of mixing in a really interesting way, I think. What were some of the, the top names in rock doing in 1965 for you write about? Let's talk about the Beatles. Let's talk about the Rolling Stones. And let's talk about Bob Dylan. So what, what works were coming out here in 1965 that you write about in your book? Well, you know, uh, with the Stones, you have Satisfaction, you know, uh, Last Time, Play With Fire, Get Off My Cloud. Dylan, you have Like a Rolling Stone, Positively Fourth Street, you know, his albums, Bringing It All Back Home, Highway 61. You know, the Beatles had, you know, an amazing run, you know, from they started the the year with I Feel Fine, number one in America. And then they had six number one hits. And by the end of the year, they were at We Can Work It Out. That's a pretty big, you know, uh, growth, emotional growth from one from the I Feel Fine vibe to the kind of darker We Can Work It Out vibe with new instruments. And then you had the Who, you know, the Yardbirds, the Birds. You know, there was, and then you had soul. You had James Brown going on. And yeah, well, yeah. Let's let's switch genres here. Tell us about. Uh, you write about Motown. You write about James Brown in 1965. Give us some more examples of what what was coming out back then. Well, there's, uh, you know, a, a huge most of, not you can't say most of it, but a huge chunk was coming right out of uh, Detroit. You know, you had the Temptations, the Supremes, the Four Tops, Stevie Wonder. You know, uh, Marvin Gaye, Martha Reeves, and then then you had down in uh, Memphis, Stax Records was trying to, you know, be the, they called themselves Soulsville to, you know, instead of Hitsville, you know, Motown called itself Hitsville. So down in, uh, at Stax Records, you had Otis Redding and um, Wilson Pickett, Sam and Dave. So uh, Soul was just uh, exploding at that time, too. And again, you're a little too young to remember this, Andrew, but my goodness, radio uh, was just at this, uh, in in many ways, the peak in the mid-1960s because you had these really, really cool AM stations here in the Detroit area, CKLW technically in Windsor, and then WKNR uh, AM, Keener 13, as it was known here, that were so eclectic and played all of the music that we talked about and much more. So you were hearing uh, rock and some psychedelic, you know, the early stages of that and great R&B and all of this fantastic pop music as well. They, they really, really combined all of that stuff together. And it was so important to, to have uh, radio stations that did that. And this was really, again, uh, before the whole FM uh, rock radio craze, which emerged right a little bit later, right? Yeah, I think wasn't it in uh, San Francisco? Maybe in '67 was it Tom Donahue? He was one of the first 
progressive rock FM stations. Yeah, out there. right. Exactly. Yeah, we had a big one uh, in Detroit, WABX FM, where the that was the real leading uh, progressive rock station in Detroit, which just took uh, you know music uh, 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 even even further out. But you know, having uh, having my little transistor radio and being able to hear my goodness, you know, the Kinks and the Beatles and and the Rolling Stones and Stevie Wonder and and Marvin Gaye and all of that great pop music, the mamas and the papas and the association and everything in between, you know, was, was really important to us in Detroit. Yeah, now they, you know, with the internet, you can have infinite eclecticism, but nobody's kind of, you know, curating it for people. So they'll never know that there's all this stuff going on unless someone tells them about it. And then there's no one telling people about it a lot. So it's like there's now you have even a million more choices, but there's no great DJs kind of, uh, you know, funneling it to you. So a lot of it's just kind of disappearing, you know. If, you, if if a tree falls in the forest but no one hears it, you know, or if it's on the Internet but you don't know it exists, then, you know, you don't know it exists. Yeah, you need you need that curation. You need that, that curator to uh, to go all all through that music to present it. How, how long did you work on this book? How long did you uh, spend writing it, Andrew? Um, let's, you know, the uh, I kind of worked on the proposal for... Boy, I don't know, a couple months. And then uh, when I sold it, I had, I had uh, wanted to do it for a number of years, but just for a number of reasons, I didn't actually sell it until, um, I think, uh, December of uh, 2013. And then we needed to get it out at the beginning of this year for the 50th anniversary. So it was kind of uh, suddenly it was like a mad rush. It was like a six-month kind of, you know, all all hands on deck you know, uh, you like live. You know, doing it ten hours a day or something like that for six months. But uh, it was great, just getting to immerse myself in it and discovering a lot of new stuff. Like, I mean, uh, the staple singers aren't exactly new, but uh, you know, through doing the book, it's the first time I really heard like Freedom Highway. Their 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 big hit about um, well, it wasn't a hit. I mean, but their classic about uh, the Selma riot, uh, the marches. Oh yeah, uh, it, it was recorded a couple of weeks right after um, Martin Luther King gave the big speech at Montgomery. You know, after the all the the civil rights struggles down there that resulted in the Voting Act. So, uh, doing the book, it was great, just discovering a lot of new music and stuff. Tell us about some of the other uh, titles that you've written. A couple of the other books that you've penned, Andrew. The um, I did a book called "Still the Greatest: The Essential Songs of the Beatles Solo Careers." which um, that, the idea, the premise of that was that um, the B, uh, after they broke up, the group was still, uh, the, the members, the individual members still released tons of excellent tunes. But in the 60s, you know, John only had to come up with five songs an album, and Paul only had to come up with five or six songs an album, and then the George two or three, Ringo one. But suddenly after they broke up, they all had to do like 12 songs every year. So there was more filler, but now that we can just go on iTunes and pick the songs you, we want, we can um, just pick the best of their solo stuff. And I kind of, so the the book was, um, it was about 200, like the, the stories behind about 200 of their songs. And then each chapter was kind of organized if that year, if he had taken the five best John tunes and five best Paul tunes from like 1973 or something and a couple of Georges, it kind of imagined the albums that could have been if they had, uh, if they had released the same stuff, but they'd been put on Beatles albums, you know, so hmm. that was the kind of 
fantasy football gimmick of the book, but uh, but mostly it was just you know the the facts, the musicians, the uh, the chart successes of everything of those songs, and then I did a book called um, Where's Ringo with a number of illustrators where um, <clears throat> there's beautiful pictures by these great illustrators and in in the pictures you got a instead of where's waldo you find ringo and there's all these other pop culture and beatles things to find and then then there's you know two pages of beatles history and then there's a beautiful illustration to find stuff and that was more of a that's kind of like a coffee table puzzle book or something your your book uh, and I love the 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 timeline which is at the very beginning of the book this 1965 selected timeline uh, has a uh, so many great dates and so many uh, re- release dates and recording dates for various albums and man December 9th a television special debuted on uh, CBS which uh, we still see around Christmas uh, every year in December and yeah just again makes this year such a special year because who would have thought that a, a 30 minute uh, uh, animated uh, cartoon would uh, be with us and be so important to us at, at Christmas time. Tell us about that. Yeah, there was a Charlie Brown Christmas. And um, it's the, the year before, it's funny, the year before, they, they, all, all the 60s kind of had the golden era of the Christmas specials because the year before was the Rudolph, the Rudolph special. Oh, yeah, right in 64. Uh huh. 64, and then the Grinch, I don't know if the Grinch was like 66 or 65, too, I'm not sure, but, but um, yeah, at the time, Peanuts was the biggest thing going, you know, Charles Schultz, and uh, so they green-lighted the special, but um, Charles Schultz just, he just threw a lot of curveballs at people, he was like, no, no, lo- no laugh tracks, you know, which was kind of... Uh, a big shocker. They're like, what? We got to have a laugh track. He's like, no, no laugh tracks. And then he was like, and then Linus is going to recite some of the gospel in, in the, the last act. And they're like, what are you doing? You're killing us. And the uh, network executives had, they didn't have too much hope for the special. They're like, well, all right, we committed to it. So we'll, we'll, we'll honor our word, but we're not going to order any more peanuts specials after this. Cause we think it's going to bomb. But, but it was, uh, a big hit, you know, and uh, it just um, kind of fit in with the mode of the times, like the kind of anti-consumerism, you know, that was kind of sweeping up the country when like the kind of went along with the folk rock kind of uh, nonconformist uh spirit of the times that, that whole special man and who can forget that great soundtrack by vince garaldi and his trio and again a, a controversial move wow you know a, a jazz soundtrack for a tv special whoa man that was a far out idea at that time right yeah and i think you know linus and lucy the famous theme i, I put that up there with one of the greatest tunes of the the year oh, <laughs> you know, God. when yeah. i list my favorite tunes i love that one what are some of your other favorites from that year andrew um, well, let's see. I mean, I have, I have a website, uh, 1965, www.1965book.com. And, uh, so I listed the, what I was saying was 125 greatest songs of the year. And, you know, in the beginning, especially the first half of the list, you have to, um, you know, go with the, like, I can't get no satisfaction like a Rolling Stone, you know, Papa's got a brand new bag which are all those kind of songs which I love, but because we've heard them so much, we almost start taking them for granted, you know? Oh, yeah. Uh, but uh, so it's stuff that I 
was more my favorite recently, just maybe because it was a little fresher. Like I kind of got into, um, for me personally, I got into Waylon Jennings. I hadn't really listened to Waylon Jennings before, but um, that was, 65 was the year he came out to to Nashville and he started rooming with Johnny Cash and he did tunes like uh, That's the Chance I'll Have to Take or Stop the World, I Want to Get Off, which are kind of great. They almost, you know, It almost sounds like rockabilly. And then he, the following year, he released an album called Folk Country. So he was kind of... Uh, almost folk he had a, like a folk rock kind of vibe almost going too and uh nico had a really nice hit with um uh she was later in the velvet underground but she she originally covered a song called um i'm not saying which was a gordon lightfoot song and gordon lightfoot folk singer who started to get a lot of uh, hits at the time like uh ribbon of darkness that year was a big country hit for him for recorded by marty robbins you know so uh you know, on on all ends of the board, and they, the Who. You know, we were talking about the Who earlier. I always liked the any any way, anyhow, anywhere. That was kind of their single before my generation, which was even more experimental and kind of crazy. Yeah, Kinks were doing some cool stuff, talking about British invasion bands. What See My Friends? I think you write about they they wrote that in '65, recorded that in '65. Yeah, and that was a really uh, important song because. The Kinks, the Yardbirds, and the Beatles were all sort of racing each other to see who would to put Eastern or Indian from India influences in their music. Because uh, first the Yardbirds had tried to put a sitar in there, but the musicians couldn't. The Indian musicians couldn't keep time with them. Like you know, they didn't have the same kind of time beats as the the Western guys. So. They used, uh, as we were saying earlier, fuzz, fuzz, uh, fuzz box technology. And then the, the Kinks had been on tour in India or had been passing through India on an Australian tour, and he heard a bunch of fishermen singing in the morning. And so he, he uh, in See My Friends, he imitated their in- intonations or their cadence. So even though there wasn't Indian instruments on that song, he started singing kind of like in an Indian style. And then... Beatles heard that and they're like, "Oh, we got to get some uh, Indian instruments on our next album." And in their movie Help, there had been uh, sitars and all that because the, supposedly the bad guys in that movie are these uh, Hindu guys who are trying to sacrifice Ringo, <laughs> which is <was laughs> kind of not the most politically correct these days, you know, a way to do it. But so then on their their album Rubber Soul, they did a, they used the actual sitar with a Norwegian wood. Let me uh, close out our interview, Andrew, by asking you this. In 1965, we're talking about just an an astonishing year in terms of innovative music and uh, this cultural transformation. And yet, uh, uh, yeah, you know, music definitely, rock music, pop music, jazz, R&B, gospel, whatever genre you want to name, growing more sophisticated and more serious. And and yet there, there is still just this air of innocence in 1965. Things started to really change through the rest of the 60s and into the 1970s yeah growing more sophisticated but at times for better or worse um a a lot more serious and at times a lot more self-indulgent and a lot of times a lot less fun than what we had in 1965 why why do you think things changed after 65 i would say because um with the vietnam war escalated in so many uh 18 year olds across the country were getting drafted it uh, 
for the middle class, it just suddenly turned things a lot darker. Than, uh, whereas um, even though civil rights struggle was going on for the majority of the white middle class, there probably wasn't such a you know a life and death situation breathing down their neck. But suddenly, in the middle of the year, Johnson started escalating the Vietnam War, and things kind of changed a lot for a lot of people after that. Thanks for listening to our Martin Van Dyke Undercovers interview with author Andrew Grant Jackson about his new book, 1965, The Most Revolutionary Year in Music. This has been a presentation of the Ann Arbor District Library.